Welcome to the South Bank Centre podcast, where some of the biggest and most influential names in modern literature, art, music and performance share their stories, thoughts and ideas. For more podcasts and videos from this year's festival, go to southbankcentre.co.uk forward slash BAM and join the conversation on Twitter with hashtag beingamanfest. I'm Jude Kelly, Artistic Director of the South Bank Centre. The conversation that we're about to have with Robert Webb is, is based on just such a, an outpouring, really. His book, um, How Not to Be a Boy. Uh, some of you may have heard it read on the radio. Some of you may have read it. If you haven't, please do buy a copy. Um, but it, again, it's, it's one of those moments when, you know, in a way, you're, you're kissing and telling about yourself. So this evening's conversation is being conducted by Nihal, who, as many of you will know, is a, he hosts a wonderful show on the BBC Asian Network and also at Radio 5 Live, Radio 1 DJ. And he's kind of made it one of his determinations to see whether he can have very, very open, honest conversations with people beyond surface celebrity into the depths of what people feel. I'm now going to pass on to Nihal and Robert for a fantastic conversation. Thank you. Hello, everyone. How's the whole being a man thing coming along? Oh, can't live with him, can't live without him. It's fine, thanks. How are you as a man <laughs> at the moment? As a husband, as a father, how are you doing? Do you want to start with man first? Oh, my goodness. I wish my wife was here to answer that question. I, I really I don't feel uh, qualified. It's going all right. You know, towards the end of the book, so most of the book is about my child and teenage years, but then there's a giant fast-forward to me in, uh, a few years ago when I first became a, a father and how some of the stuff from my childhood just accidentally got imported into that. So I'm sort of recovering from that because you sort of start noticing some of the stuff that, that was less welcome about one's own father's behaviour. Was there a, um, oh shit, I'm my dad moment? Not so much a moment as a sort of dawning realisation, like, a, you know, like a, a nightmare slowly closing in around you. No, my dad, um, it's very difficult since we've, we've started at the end and now I'm going to have to go, but anyway, that's, you've got your own techniques, Nihal. Um, I've been doing this a while. Thank my goodness. mother and father divorced when I was five. Dad drank quite a lot and he didn't really know what to do with a small family. I have two older brothers. He punished his sons physically, but there again, to put that into context, this is the 70s, you know, when corporal punishment was still legal in primary schools. You could still come at a nine-year-old with a stick and not just keep your job as a teacher, but be a teacher. You're really teaching. So that was the, that environment. But anyway, my mother had enough of that by the time I was five. What I noticed when I became a father was, you know, I'd rather chew my own arms off than hurt the children, but some of the stuff started to kind of reassert itself because that was the original model and of course it's modeled in the rest of the culture as well so instead of making up my own way of being a dad I kind of allowed that that sort of automatic pilot to slip in so there was a kind of breadwinning panic you know I must go out I must spear the mammoth I must you know earn earn the money which is kind of reasonable to some extent but there again I was definitely just taking on work that I didn't need to um, which is a very convenient thing because, you know, much as I adore my children when they were little, looking after very small infants is a pain in the arse and, you know, is relentless. So it was quite convenient that I had this, oh, no, it's because of the patriarchy I have to go and do Robert's Web and uh, great movie mistakes and other things on my CV from that 
period for which I, I'm excusing myself. <laughs> um, and, and I was drinking a fair bit, and, and just generally the, the double standard of, you know, I wouldn't dream of going on stage drunk, apart from tonight. Um, uh, or, or turning up in front of a camera, having had any kind of drink, but there again, what I was at home, I was perfectly, like, I'm completely fine, I can look after these small, inf- oh, I've trodden on one. Oh. Uh, you know, and it's a very, it was a very tricky time. How did Abby, your wife, help you come to that realisation? Just to, well, eventually she wrote me a letter saying how much she missed me, because you're not really present. We just talked and I was occasionally able to, you know, answer the question, what's the matter, without giving the reply, nothing. You know, because I think men, I speak for myself, but I think sometimes when somebody says, what's the matter, we experience it as a challenge to our pride, because the whole point is that nobody notices when something's wrong. The whole point of being a man is that you hide it and you keep it to yourself and you ignore it and you bottle it up and you shrug it off and you pretend it's not happening. And it's incredibly harmful because it leaves you certainly less capable of dealing with adversity and indeed less capable of love. You're just too closed in to make yourself vulnerable enough to experience the complicated uh, glory of it. So as a child, anger was the only emotion what are we saying to a boy when we say man up or act like a man? You know, it can have a perfectly benign meaning, like, you know, do the thing that needs doing even though you don't feel like doing it. Man up, do your homework. Bit aggressive, but, you know. Um, but it, sometimes it also has a, a more sinister and harmful meaning, which is that negative feeling that you're feeling, stop expressing it. And the more you hear that, the more it starts to sound uncannily like that feeling that you're feeling, stop feeling it. One of the things about this festival, being a man, and the people I've interviewed is these different stages when you get to different realizations. Mm. Looking back, when's the first realization that this is what I'm meant to be? Because you were a very shy child, weren't you? Yeah, well, I, yes, I've always been sort of preoccupied with notions of the way boys are supposed to be, masculinity, and gender conditioning and that kind of thing, probably because I found it quite a tough fit when I was a boy. I didn't have a problem with my sex assignment. I didn't want to be a girl. Heaven forbid. Everyone knew it was much worse being a girl. But I definitely found the, you know, the stuff about, you know, you're supposed to be into running and jumping and climbing trees and swimming and football and you're cheeky and you're boisterous and unruly and disruptive and boys will be boys and all of this stuff. I couldn't do any of that. I was very, very shy. And I was a complete dead loss at at all sports. But there were rules that I could do. In the book, I call them the sovereign importance of early homophobia and the paramount objective of despising girls. If there was one thing worse than being a girl, it was being a gay, and only gays played with girls. That was clear. If you're, you know, an average seven-year-old in in the late 70s, or if you're Donald Trump, then... um, (laughs) You get over your insecurities by showing maximum contempt to the outgroup. The outgroup in this case was girls with Donald. It's fucking anyone who's not Donald, really. But, um. There must have been many reasons why your mother left your father, but one of them certainly was his attitudes to child-rearing. Yeah. Well, he just didn't know what to do with a small family, and to put it mildly, he wasn't at his best. You know, I came to an understanding with him as we both got older and we both uh, just mellowed a little bit. Was there any part of you that wanted to be him? 
that, that looked Ooh. up to him. I did like that he was popular, and I liked that he was funny. By the time I moved in with him, so after my mother died, I moved back in with him. And it was rocky because, you know, he was a very traditional, conservative... Imagine a Leave voter and then some. Um, no, no, I mean, I was, there are lots of very decent Leave voters, and I love you all equally. Um, but, he was, but he was a very, you know, this is a, a white working class, non-college educated, slightly racist, very sexist person of the baby boomer generation. I thought there was going to be a big clash. There was no clash because there was no arguing with him. We would sit and have our tea watching Channel 4 News, which he loved getting angry about. And, you know, whatever woman or homosexual was failing to maintain or sufficiently support the status quo uh, as being interviewed by Jon Snow, he would get very, very angry and shout uh, at them and at Jon Snow. Jon Snow would wear sort of uh, quite uh, elaborate, elaborately coloured ties, still does, and he has quite piercing blue eyes. And I remember Dad one, one tea time just looking at the TV and going, oh, who's a pretty boy then? <laughs> with, with just so much contempt. How does this shy boy, his father's not in his life, sit at this grammar school mm. and not doing very well with girls? No. I think he's a no, no, doing very badly with girls. Yeah. It took me a tremendously long time to lose my virginity, and I, by the end, I had to do it for the good of my eyesight. That's a Billy Connolly joke. Um, but, it, <laughs> but it was, but, but I, was, I became, it sort of, I felt, it felt like it was weighing me down, uh, like a sort of concrete tiara. Um, I mean, it, it, felt, it felt emasculating, um, because there was this meme knocking around at the time. We didn't call them memes then, we called them old wives' tales, so that's... that's uh, <laughs> That's progress of a kind. <laughs> that, you know, men think about sex every seven seconds. And I thought, men think about sex every seven seconds? Fucking hell. It takes me seven seconds to tie my shoelaces. Was I thinking about sex during then? Should I have been thinking about sex? Is the reason I'm not having sex because I don't think about sex enough? Feels like I think about sex quite often. <laughs> but uh, maybe I should be thinking about sex more. So by the time I was you know, 15, 16, 17, it, it, all, it all happened when I was 17. But 15 and 16, it was just... Uh, you know, it felt like, not that most of my friends had done, but most of my friends, it felt, had, had been, were getting closer than I was. And I was just, I was enraged about it. I mean, I thank God there was no internet. But I did keep a diary, which is just this prose poem of self-pity and hate. The kind of, why won't these girls, why did they lack the basic imagination to want to get off with me? What's wrong, what's wrong with my white leather tie that I wear to parties? What's wrong with my jeans with pleats in and my red and grey ski jacket? And what, uh, what, they want me to wash my hair more than once a week? Come on, it can't be that. It can't be that school blazer that I've worn five days a week for two years without having ever washed. That can't, that can't be the problem. Um, so, yeah, if I went back in time, I would tell that guy to, to have a bath uh, <laughs> uh, more than anything. When you discovered that, that your mother's illness was terminal, one of the things, the first things you said to her was, in fact, I'm still a virgin. So I, I had this conversation with her, which I remember uh, extremely well, obviously, and, uh, and, I, and it's in the book. And she said, um, is there anything you want to ask me or anything that you want to tell me. And I sort of, I say in the book, you know, I felt a thousand future selves lean in with interest because what is the statement or the question that is up to that? And, you know, there is no such statement apart from I love you. And I didn't 
I didn't really trust myself to, to say that without losing it. So I, which was, I know it was important, but I didn't because I'm a boy and I'm strong and I don't lose it. And, but also, also, you don't want to cry on the person who's dying because it's kind of, it shouldn't really go that way around anyway. That's how I felt at the time. So I said, um, everyone talks about how I'm having sex the whole time. Would it surprise you to hear that I'm a virgin? And she started to smile, but she didn't want to look like she was taking the piss. Um, and she said, uh, I won't say I'm surprised. I won't say I'm unsurprised, but you'll catch them up. And I said, most of my friends have got girlfriends. And she said, you'll catch them up and overtake them in everything. So, yeah, that was a good chat, really. And then, better, we, all, then we all carried on watching Dallas. And then I made a cup of tea. Yeah. Bobby Ewing, meeting with oil Bobby barons. Bobby Ewing was yeah. meeting, having an unusually long meeting with the oil barons, yes. yeah. Well, that was a lot better meeting than the meeting you'd had some moments before with your dad and stepdad, Derek, when yes. your dad broke the news to you, which, which exemplifies his attitude towards the nuances of emotion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I knew that she was extremely ill, but I didn't know exactly how ill I hadn't, uh, nobody had told me, and I hadn't asked. Came from school, I saw dad's van parked outside, he was around the table with uh, my stepdad, Derek, and he sat me down and he said, now then, boy, mummy's poorly, it's terminal. And that's how he told me. And he'd had a couple of drinks and he was sort of, his eyes were bloodshot and he actually, he was actually angry. Then he immediately started talking about whether Derek needs to get a cleaner. He was looking around the kitchen and going, uh, oh, mate, you probably, you'll probably want to need to get a cleaner because it's hard, isn't it? It's hard uh, keeping a place clean. And Derek, not exactly Captain Charisma, bless him. I mean, he was, he was a lot gentler than my dad, but still, the, the search for a, <laughs> a man who was sort of uh, dynamic without being a psychopath and <laughs> gentle without being in a coma um, <laughs> went on. Um, <laughs> Derek looked around and said, well, this is it, yeah. And then Dad, I, I have Josie. Uh, she comes uh, a couple of times a week. What do you tend to pay Josie? Well, I give her a fiver, mate, but she'll probably want a bit more coming out here. Oh, right, yeah. And Derek's about to haggle and then notices that I'm crying. And just after your mother's funeral, the same day, perhaps something you'd inherited from your father is this, just get on with it. Yeah. I think there's something to be said for keeping yourself busy when you're in pain, but it, I accept that this was slightly extreme, which was, uh, I went to my mother's funeral, and then that afternoon I went into school, because there was a university's admissions fair happening in Nottingham in the afternoon. And you turn up, and there's University of Manchester, and Leeds, etc., etc., and then in the corner there's an older lady sitting there on her own with a Cambridge uh, sign in front of her desk, and I'd become kind of obsessed with going there. I wasn't a straight A's kind of student, but I noticed a lot of the people who really, really made me laugh when I was watching the TV had been to university, and quite a few of them had been to one university in particular, and they'd been in this comedy club called the Cambridge Footlights, and I wondered about whether it was possible to do that. And so I wandered over, I started talking to this tutor called Catherine, yeah, and then there was a conversation that's in the book. So you have to buy the book. I'm not yes, there you I'm go. Not there you go. What gave you the sense of self-belief that you could get to somewhere like Cambridge? Um, Where did that come well, from? Well, I was uh, partly in that conversation, you know, so I had uh, four A's and four B's at GCSE, and she said, that's, it's not silly for you to think of us. It was a good school. But also when mum died, because she was the sort of 
indispensable parent. She was the, and she was a very, very good friend as well, and it was just becoming quite a sort of equal grown-up relationship. And when something like that happens, I mean, it can go one of a million different ways, but for me, the sort of silver lining that I sort of had no choice but to find was that it emboldened me, and that here is one of the worst things I can imagine happening to me, happening to me, and now, you know, there is no point being scared of being laughed at by, you know, applying to a university that, by the way, I, I come from a family, no one had been to university at all. We, you know, we read the Daily Mirror and we watched Blind Date and we, we went on package holidays to Costa de Rada uh, and uh, it was a, everyone had a job, no one had a career. It was a fairly standard, uh, I call it a working class background, but not in front of Muriel Gray, who told me that this sounds like lower middle to her. <laughs> And uh, we actually got into an argument uh, at one of these events about what, anyway. Um, so whether, it, but whether it, to me, lower middle is people who keep their telly in the cabinet. That's lower middle, right? <laughs> Working class, telly out. Lower middle, telly in the cabinet. Middle middle, telly. Upper middle, no telly. Aristocrats, several tellies. I think that's how it works. I wasn't aware of that scale. <laughs> I didn't know there was a telly class. Yeah. So, okay, so once you get to Cambridge and your, your dad and your brother drop you off, in his mind, it was, it was a daunting thing for you. As you've written in, in your own mind, actually, it was freedom. Yeah, um, I think Dad was just, I don't remember what, what he said because he was already irritated that he was going to have to drive home in yes, the drizzle. In the Cavalier, and he, couldn't, yeah. he couldn't quite, um, you know, fix the, the interval wipe between, you know, two, sorry, this is a, sounds like a Michael McIntyre routine, but, you know, uh, he was, interval, what are you, spoons, what are spoons for? Nobody knows what spoons are for. <laughs> anyway, um, so... Oh anyway, gosh, but he was so, so he was already he hated driving, so he was already annoyed about it. But my oldest brother Mark was there, and he said, you know, I noticed that he was getting a bit emotional. He gave me he had a business card by, by that time, and on the back of it he'd written, whatever the time of day or night, if you need me, give me a call, and <laughs> chokes me on now. But it occurred to me for the first time that you know that he wasn't he wasn't my big brother around to look after me anymore, and and so from his point of view, it was quite a big deal. Yes, my memory of it was I waved them off and I say in the book, it's a pity I wasn't wearing, it's a pity I was wearing trainers because I had no heel to turn on. And I, but I turned on it anyway and walked into Robinson College um, thinking, because I, I'd been there literally 10 minutes and I'd never felt safer or more at home since mum died in, the, in that preceding three years. It was exactly where I had been obsessed with getting to and it wasn't a disappointment. Uh, which is, I mean, it was odd because when I, once I was there, there were a lot of middle-class students there. For them, it was going to, I was going to go to Cambridge, I was going to go to Cambridge, I went to Cambridge. And it was, <laughs> and for, me, and for me, it was kind of, you know, I'd taken three years over those A-levels because I'd screwed them up the first time because it was partly t to do with mum dying. And so it was, a, it was such a big deal for me. So, so I should stop get saying so when I actually do not have any more of that sentence to, okay, fine, to give. Fine, fine. So. so at this stage, it's good for me to know that, actually. That's, yeah. that, that's good. Yeah. Um, so you're at Cambridge, and then what do you discover about being a young man, being an undergraduate, 
at these new opportunities? Are you more confident to go and approach members of the uh, opposite sex? Yeah, well, actually, yes. Because of I had a late birthday and my sort of enforced gap year, which I spent going back to school. I actually spent a year in the class of the year below, uh, retaking my A-level. So by the time I got there, I just turned 20. So I was quite elderly and um, <laughs> experienced. I was hanging out with third years, and it was all a bit cool, and I'd grown my hair, and I had my earring, and I was a member of the late party, actually. And so it, was all, so it was all quite fun. It all went a bit better sexually, yes. <laughs> It was, uh, it was. I wasn't a... being that purian, actually. It was more. Come on. That's exactly what, what you were after. You want the deets. You want the stats. <laughs> I'm not doing the stats. I'm not Nick Clegg. <laughs> um, no, it, it all went. It all, that, all, that was all tickety boo. It was a comfortable place for you finally to be yes. who you wanted to be. Yes. I mean, it was. It was I thought it was. It was. It was kind of what I wanted as opposed to what I needed, really, because I still wasn't. I still hadn't really dealt with the amount of pain I was in over mum, and there was a particular moment towards the end of that first year. So there was this um, very sexy girl, who in the book I call uh, Lily, and this beautiful third-year man called Sam, who I was besotted with, completely infatuated with. I just thought, I just wanted to found a minor religion in his honour. And what happened was, so I was in love with this guy, and I had this sort of casual sexual arrangement uh, with Lily, and then what happened is they went out with each other, which is, you know, the, the classic bisexual... Uh, I mean, I think it happens more... I think it's more common than you might imagine, or at least that's, <laughs> that's what people told me. Uh, that's what they told me. But anyway, I was very upset about that, and I sort of couldn't eat for a couple of weeks, and I thought, well, this is an overreaction to this upsetting turn of events. And I booked an appointment with the university counselling service because Cambridge runs a free counselling service for students. There's a bit of a waiting list. You have this initial assessment. It's kind of how bonkers are you anyway. That's, those are not the preferred terms. Um, and I started talking about Lillian. Sam and the, the head of the counselling service looked frankly bored. And then he said, thank you. And now if you could tell me something of your family. So I talked about uh, mum and dad, and then I talked about uh, mum, and then I talked about dad, and his pencil flew into action uh, like he was cramming at the end of an exam. Um, and he said at the end of it, there's been a lot of separation in your life, and I think, you use, I think you use that as a model for current adversities, and it makes them feel worse than they actually are, and I think you've got a problem, and I think we can help. And to hear a proper professional grown-up saying, we can help and you have got a problem and you're not just being a self-indulgent asshole turning up here, you were in the right place. Made all the difference and then I started seeing a nice guy called Michael. Uh, by the way, this is the second event I've done. I was in Cambridge at lunchtime and Michael was there and he came up and it was uh, uh, absolutely startling. Rather unfairly, he didn't introduce himself. He just stood there waiting for me to recognise him. <laughs> Twat. <laughs> but he was, he was a very nice man. And it, was, it, it, it wasn't really that during that hour you make massive discoveries about what, what you are like and, and, and what's going on in your head. It's that for the preceding week, because I was having genuine suicidal thoughts, and I was in a bad way, really. And during that week, you could sort of say to yourself, OK, here's a really unpleasant experience that's happening in my head, but at least I can talk to Michael about it on Thursday. And knowing that that outlet was there made all the difference because of course you can with your friends and your family but then there's always this feeling of guilt that you're kind of taking up their time you're worrying about yourself 
For men, I believe, in particular, being accused of being self-indulgent is a, is, is a terrible thing to hear. Um, we're going to open it up now, I think, uh, for you wonderful people to ask questions. Starting with you. Good evening. Hello. Hello. Thank you very much, Robert. It was great. Thank you. Um, you mentioned that you didn't feel like you were equipped to deal with your mother's death very well. Yeah. I wanted to ask how you've addressed that and if you think you're more resilient now. Thank you. Um, I think the counselling massively helped, um, not just for its own sake, but also giving you practice in how to, to, when the subject comes up again, how to talk to normal people who are not professionals uh, about it. And also, I think as anybody who's lost someone, which is almost everyone here, knows, it's, a, it's also just a question of time. You know, you never really get over a loss like that, but you do learn to make peace with it. You know, it's 27 years for me now, but, um, but still, I know on Christmas Day, she'll be there. And, you know, birthdays, her death day, her birthday, you know, those days uh, and those moments, certain songs, certain smells, certain sounds, um, it never really goes away, but, you, but it's time. Um, but thank you. My friend. Hi, Robert. Um, so wonderful to hear you talk. Uh, I'm just wondering about uh, thinking about uh, jazz in Peep Show. Um, yes. I'm just wondering how much of your, yourself you, you, you put into him and also how you feel about him as a, as a, as a role model within you know, contemporary society. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not sure wow. that I would endorse jazz as a role model um, for anyone apart from an aspiring uh, musician who wants to get nowhere. Um, uh, but how much myself did I put into it? Well, you know, at the time, there were, there were times in those series, the middle series, where David and I were seeing so much of each other that it was actually quite cathartic to be allowed to stand inches away from his face and, and scream incredibly rude things at him. There was a streak of implacable malice directed at David Mitchell that was a, that was a big part of jazz. Sam Bain and Jesse Armstrong wrote those characters for me and David, and they cast us that way around for a reason. You know, we could have played them the other way around, but it would have been a bit odd. Clearly, they saw a deeply narcissistic, selfish, stupid, arrogant, talentless, lying, uh, delusional loser in me. And, and I played it to the best of my ability. Good evening. Hello. Hiya. Um, I just wanted to say a big thank you for sharing your experiences of being with both men and women when you were younger. Um, because I still think there's a massive taboo and stigma attached to being bisexual, especially like yeah. as a young man. So I just wondered like what your thoughts were on that and maybe how you think young men could be supported a bit more in being more open to being well, bisexual. Thank you. I mean, it, it's weird because it feels like it, it should be a non-issue now and it kind of is a non-issue, but I did, it did, I did think twice, to be honest with you. I thought twice about, shall I include some of that stuff and, and in fact uh, not just what did I call them Sam and Lily but uh, there's a character called Will who's pretty much the first person I really really uh, fell in love with and, uh, and he happened to be a bloke as well and, and you know he wasn't the last but it did sort of peter out I blame Peter no there was no there was no Peter um, but that that side of my sexuality just became less and less important to me until it sort of just not disappeared entirely but until 
you know, the, the, the time when marrying a woman and committing entirely to a monogamous relationship with a woman didn't seem like an issue. But then it, it shouldn't anyway, because it's not, it's not, I think there's a common misunderstanding about bisexuality. How, can you, how do you get married if you're bisexual? Surely you're tempted by twice the number of people. No, you're not tempted by twice the number of people. If you're gonna be tempted, don't fucking get married. It's, you know, it's not twice the temptation. There is no temptation. You've made this extraordinary promise. You better have meant it. So that part of my nature is not a big deal anymore, but I thought, you know, I couldn't tell the story without including it because it was, a, it was a big part of my life as a teenager and a young man, as Michael Portillo put it. Good evening. What would you like to ask, Robert? Um, hi, Robert. Hello. Uh, my name's Claire. Thanks hi. so much for writing the book. That um, was literally my pleasure. <laughs> appreciate it. Um, I was interested to hear about your school experience. I'd... Um, automatically assumed you've been to an all-boys school. Um, my partner's male, so I kind of consider myself a student of masculinity because of that. I noticed at my school that definitely uh, being gentlemanly wasn't something that got you status. Pinching people's bums was what you got you status. Yeah. And no one, no one addressed that, even though it was, I'm, uh, I have to say, younger than you, so it's sad that things seem to have gone backwards. What seemed to get boys status at my partner's school, at least, was how funny they were. I don't know whether it's because you're tired of talking about it, perhaps you're bored of talking about the extent to which men use uh, comedy to hide their emotions and the gender yeah. difference between men and women in um, terms th- of comedians. I think it, thank you. I think it can be, well, if we, there's, there's a difference between you know, men using humour as a defence mechanism. I don't think everybody does. I mean, this is Britain where we all like to go around thinking that we have this special access to irony and understatement, and there's absolutely no evidence for that at all. Um, but we, we love to, you know, one of the worst things you can say about someone in this country is that they've got no sense of humour. We all think we're funny, uh, and that's great. But in terms of professional stuff, um, I could talk about women being discriminated against in comedy. Uh, I don't think that's much of a secret. I don't think that's going to be a groundbreaking. I was saying uh, the other day, you know, by the time David and I turned up and Peep Show was established, uh, it was on its third series and we had a series on the radio and then we turned up at Television Centre and said, we'd like our own sketch show on BBC Two, please. And, you know, Fry and Laurie was not a particularly distant memory. Uh, Newman and Medill had had a show. Punt and Dennis had had a show. Armstrong and Miller uh, had a show. These are just people who met at Cambridge. At no point did anyone say, no, there's no, there's no room for another male double act, sorry. Of course there was room for another male double act. And yet you, you, you have a female double act turning up, could turn up now, 20 years later, and would still hear, yeah, you see, Miranda's thinking about doing a special, so... Because if there's a woman, if there's already a woman on, then forget it. It's just a deeply sexist industry. In terms of if there's a gender Try difference being between... between men, yeah, yes. fair enough. Try being female and Asian. Um, <laughs> if, if there's a gender difference between how men and women use humour, I, I, I don't know. Uh, it feels like men feel that they own the bants, and women are only funny when they get together in secret. I don't think that's true, but I think it is true, isn't it? Good evening, sir. What would you like to ask? Hi, Robert. Thanks very much for a brilliant talk. Hi, yeah, um, thank you. Uh, as a father, how has kind of gender conformity um, had an impact on you uh, and your relationships with your kids, particularly with daughters, uh, with the patriarchy and with um, the inherent sexism with society? How have you been able to teach them about that? Thank you. Um, yeah, we like to think that, I mean, gender-neutral parenting, I've heard it being described as um, gardening in a gale. 
Um, you know, there's so much in the culture uh, that it is, it's, it's very hard. But our approach has been, we, we, we didn't ban the color pink, we didn't stop them dressing up as princesses, of course not, uh, if they wanted to. We also made sure there was plenty of Lego knocking around, they dress up as knights as well, they do karate classes. And I like to think that if we'd had two boys, it would have been the same approach, that you just lay out as many options as you can. But of course, you know, they are being told all the time, boys and girls, um, that their personality, to some extent, is uh, dictated by what they've got in the front of their pants in a way that just isn't true biologically. Um, uh, you know, and they're told that this is, you know, you, it's, you're somehow going against the grain if you're a girl and you want to be an engineer, you're slightly going against the grain if you're a boy and you want to be, a, I don't know, a ballet dancer or a florist. And it's just a load of complete made-up nonsense. And so it's worth, you know, giving them the equipment to spot it when they, to name it when they see it. I think that's not mucking about with biology, that's a straightforward duty of care. That's it for this episode. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast to keep up with the latest hot topics and big thinkers. For more information on what's going on at our venues, visit southbankcentre.co.uk or look us up on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. You can find all our podcast channels if you search for Southbank Centre on iTunes or wherever you go to get your podcasts.